0: Welcome to Cosmic Controversy
1: with author and veteran science journalist, Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, the search for planets beyond the solar system, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 10 of Cosmic Controversy. Three new missions are en route to Mars. In the 55 years since NASA's Mariner 4 spacecraft's historic flyby, we've made great strides in deciphering the red planet, but much remains unknown. To discuss some of these puzzles, today I'm pleased to welcome Isaac Smith, the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Science at York University in Toronto. A former Fulbright Scholar, Smith is an expert on Mars Polar Science and questions regarding the role ice has played in Mars's past and present climate. Most recently, Smith was one of the scientific organizers of the 7th International Conference on Mars Polar Science and Exploration in Ushuaia, Argentina. This past January, Smith and colleagues kindly allowed me to sit in on that meeting. Today, Smith joins us from Colorado. Isaac, welcome to Cosmic Controversy.
0: Thanks very much, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, uh, let's get right to it. A press release just this week regarding a new paper in Nature Geoscience states that a large number of the valley networks scarring the surface of Mars were carved by water melting through glacial ice, not by free-flowing rivers as previously thought. The findings now effectively throw cold water on the dominant warm and wet ancient Mars hypothesis. Which postulates that rivers, rainfall, and oceans once existed on the red planet. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, it was really interesting to read this paper. And I think they made some really compelling points about the shape of the channels, the, which includes the length of the channel, the width of the channel, and then the cross sectional shapes, which is the, you know, if it's a V or a U. Um, some pretty compelling arguments about a few of the channels. And I think that uh, this really does. Uh, elevate the hypothesis about an earlier icy Mars. Um, The the hypothesis has been around a really long time. It's not a new one. Um, And sometimes it goes out of favor and sometimes it comes back in favor. And so uh, this is some good geomorphic evidence rather than just pure modeling that would lead us in this direction. Um, I think that there's uh, some uncertainty in the results and the the authors in the paper themselves say there's some subjectivity to the interpretation. But overall, I think that... uh, It adds weight to this idea, and it can potentially explain how Mars got to be the way it is today.
1: And uh, how does that affect your work?
0: Uh, Directly, it doesn't, in the sense that uh, what I study is really the recent last few million years of Mars history. Uh, So when we compare this to ancient Mars, which is 3.7 or so billion years ago, uh, there's not a direct correlation, but there is an indirect one, because the quantity of ice that Mars had and possessed on the surface at that time... Led to the current amount of Mar- ice we see on Mars. And so understanding the full distribution and quantity of ice at that time is going to give us a much better idea of how we got to our present state. Uh, and that's where most of my research is involved.
1: Okay. So uh, then there was a second press release uh, using uh, that uh, about uh, NASA's InSight uh, lander uh, from Rice mm-hmm. University. And it says that. Uh, Rice University seismologists have made the first direct measurements of three subsurface boundaries from the crust to the core of the red planet. So, again, your thoughts on this one.
0: I think it's uh, really a stunning result. Um, I haven't heard uh, in my community a lot of people talking about it yet. It's really new, and so I think people are still processing it. Um, This is exactly why... Insight was sent there. The size instrument on the Insight was designed to detect the boundary between the core and the mantle, different segments of the mantle, the top of the cru- or the bottom of the crust, top of the mantle. This is the exact reason it was sent. And so, uh, if these results are, are true, then it's really going to be a stunning uh, advance in our understanding of Mars' uh, subsurface, especially the deep subsurface, um, which was the goal of the mission. So it's a really cool result. I hope it holds up well through the uh, process of future examination.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the three Mars missions currently en route. Uh, what you hope to get from them, even if you aren't directly involved.
0: Sure. Uh, well, there's three missions. There's uh, the Emirates Explorer mission um, or EMM, I should say, and it's the first mission launched from uh, by a country in the Middle East, which is a really stupendous result. And uh, we're really excited to see it. It, It's a uh, mission that's going to observe the upper atmosphere. Uh, So, similar to what uh, other spacecraft have done in the past, but it takes with it a unique set of instruments that's going to give us new detailed measurements that haven't been made before.
1: So, it was kind of a follow on mission to uh, NASA's Mars MAVEN mission. Is that correct?
0: A follow on, in some sense. There is some continuity. Uh, Participants on the EMM team uh, have overlap with the participants on Maven team Mm -hmm. and I think some of the ideas were spread that way and so some of the goals of Maven that weren't fully addressed by that spacecraft will be met by this mission Uh, but there are other unique things that it's going to do so it's not just a follow on it's actually uh, got some really compelling science goals that are unique to it
1: okay and um, so then the Chinese mission I I admittedly don't know a lot about that myself Uh, do you know uh, the details on that one
0: Uh, I know some of the instruments that are going to be sent uh, and there's three parts. There's an orbiter uh, and that's the first thing that'll really become active. Uh, When it arrives next year, it's going to go into orbit around Mars and eventually spin down to the final orbit. Uh, That orbiter will carry with it a lander that's kind of a base or a platform uh, that will land on the surface and then extend ramps and then a rover will drive off of the uh, lander. And each of these have some really interesting experiments. So the ground penetrating radar... Uh, should be able to see below the surface. There's a magnetic field detector, which is going to measure the magnetic field locally. Uh, that's pretty exciting. We haven't done that very much on Mars. Um, there's a meteor- meteorological measurement instrument, which uh, I fully believe that everything that touches the surface of Mars should take a me- meteorological package. And so I'm really excited to see what they're going to measure there. Okay. And there's several other things. When um, I'm really excited about this. And as you mentioned, that we don't know that much about it. And I think that's part of... The strategy of the Chinese space program is. <laughs> is that right? I think so. Um, they, they from su- what I understand, if they, they have a z- success, they want everybody <laughs> in the world to know it's a success. If they don't have a success, they don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to mention it. And so uh, they're, okay. they're yeah, keeping that. mum until it, it's successful.
1: So, uh, But potentially it could do ground penetrating radar. Uh, that's has, right. has anyone ever attempted that before?
0: Uh, there is an instrument that's flying to Mars right now on the Mars twenty twenty rover okay. that'll do RAM. Uh and that was called Rimfax.
1: And as far as their rover goes, uh, how would you compare their rover to any of are there is the rover they're sending to Mars probably going to be something on the order of the Pathfinders that we that preceded the uh, Mars Curiosity and and the, and the and the more advanced the rover program of the jet propulsion lab?
0: I don't know exactly where it falls in the size category. Uh, This is going to be much more capable than the Pathfinder mission. Um, Looking at the instrument suite, I think it's going to be a little closer to the Spirit and Opportunity class rovers. Uh, And that's also, uh, this is a little speculation because I, uh, you know, we don't know a lot about it, uh, but it's going to drive off of the landed platform. And so um, it has to be able to fit inside of a rocket. uh, And that landed platform has a maximum size. So I think the Spirit Opportunity class is going to be approximately the same size.
1: So what about the uh, the Mars Perseverance uh, 2020 rover, which is, it should be just be spectacular. Uh,
0: yeah, this was uh, a very advanced mission. The science is, should be really astounding. Uh, it's going to take a unique set of instruments to go measure uh, a delta, uh, or it's a dry delta in a dry lake bed um, from ancient Mars, where people suspect there might have been life at one point, or at least the conditions that would have supported life. Uh, the rover is going to take samples from that and then uh, collect them. And eventually, NASA will send another mission to go collect those samples and bring them back to Earth. This is really a huge technological feat, uh, if successful. And, uh, of course, we all want it to succeed.
1: So let's talk about the Yeshua Mars Conference. Uh, as I noted in a, in a Forbes post, seasonal fluctuations of Mars's polar caps have been observed since the time of William Herschel in the 18th century. But there are still large gaps in our understanding of how Mars's polar caps have varied over geological time. Uh, what progress have we made in understanding the poles since the days of Herschel?
0: We've made tremendous progress. Um, the first photographs to come back in the late 1800s showed that Mars had uh, uh, seasonal ice caps for each pole, north and south, that alternated just like on Earth, and that was kind of it uh, at the time. They didn't know if it was carbon dioxide or water ice. In fact, I think they just believed it was water ice because they didn't really have experience with CO2 ice. Uh, We do know now that it is CO2 and that approximately a third of the atmosphere of Mars condenses to the surface each season. And that affects a lot of things on the planet. Uh, It affects the surface pressure, but it also affects the concentration of different molecules in the atmosphere. Uh, CO2 condenses to the surface, but argon and nitrogen and oxygen don't because uh, they freeze at a lower temperature. And that's just the stuff about the seasonal cap. We know a tremendous amount of things about seasonal activity due to dunes moving across the surface, gullies formation. We have uh, these eranoforms, which are spider-like features that go into the soil, but erupt through the seasonal ice cap. And this is really just seasonal things. And then there's these long-term things that we see. Just like on Earth, Mars has Milankovitch cycles. We've learned that since the eighteen hundreds.
1: And could you explain for the, for the listener Milankovitch cycle uh, so they can get an idea of what you're talking about there?
0: Certainly. Just like on Earth, Mars has changes in the ob- obliquity. The obliquity is the tilt of the planet with respect to the ecliptic. Now, the ecliptic is an imaginary plane for the solar system that all the planets lie in. And so the tilt of the planet changes. On Earth, it only changes by about two degrees, and that's enough to give us ice ages. On Mars, it can change by 15 degrees every uh, few tens of thousands of years to 100,000 years. Uh, A full cycle takes about 100,000. And so there's extreme changes. The poles can get really warm. And when that happens, the ice is removed from the poles, and it goes to a place that's more favorable in the mid-latitudes usually, around 45 degrees. And then um, with that, we can have what we call ice ages on Mars, which are a little different because the ice is moving away from the pole rather than accumulating at the pole. Additionally, there's changes in the argument of perihelion, which is where Mars is when it's closest to the sun. Right now, it's during southern summer, but sometimes it's during northern summer. And this will contribute to where ice is stable at either north or south pole. And then there's the argument of eccentricity, which is the the circularity of the orbit. And right now, Mars is less circular than Earth. It's more oval-shaped. And so it's really close to... The Mars is really close to the sun at southern summer and so the southern summer is much hotter than the northern summer and then over time that eccentricity can change back to circular and so that you don't have an opposite effect between the hemispheres and so then ice can be stable at both poles instead of one over the other and so that's uh, what I mean by Milankovitch-like cycles on Mars. Earth has the same things but to much smaller degree.
1: But the the obliquity (laughs) changes in the axial tilt of Mars uh, is caused by the fact that unlike Earth, Mars do, does not have a, a significant uh, natural satellite like our Moon, and our Moon is known to stabilize our obli- uh, Earth's obliquity. Is that correct? That's
0: right. Yep. So the the obliquity is stabilized. It's it's a it's about angular momentum, and the Earth and the Moon trade angular momentum, and in doing so, it stabilizes the Earth. Mars doesn't have that. It has two small moons, and they don't really. Stabilize it that much. Additionally, Mars is much closer to Jupiter, and Jupiter can tug on Mars and pull it further out. And this is going to affect the eccentricity or the circular shape of the orbit.
1: And and so, so um, is this also the eccentricity of Mars's orbit is one reason Mars is much closer to the Earth at uh, every two years or two? I think it's two and two point four two two years and four months or something like that. The, the perihelion.
0: So the the eccentricity does affect uh, the launch. Window and it affects the launch energy, which is the amount of energy it takes a rocket to to send something to Mars. But it doesn't affect the timing. The timing is really driven by the orbital periodicities. And so it takes Earth exactly one year to go around the sun. It takes Mars uh, a lot more than that. And it takes about 670 days to go all the way around the sun. Uh, it's slower, but it's farther out. So Earth can lap Mars. And what happens is uh, every 24 Excuse me, every 26 months, Earth laps Mars. And in doing so, that creates the opportunities for the launch windows. The close, the proximity affects how much energy we need, how big a rocket we need to send whatever we're sending. And so that's, that affects the rocket size more than the timing.
1: Right. Okay. And um, so the only way around this would be to find another uh, method of propulsion, I guess.
0: So, um, yes. Uh, so I want to be clear that the, the periodicity is just for the lowest energy favorable opportunities. You could launch anytime you wanted, but it's going to cost a lot more energy. And so if you had a way to use propulsion that didn't wasn't like a, a rocket with uh, liquid or solid fuel that you could burn up and run out of, if you had a different type of fuel that wouldn't run out so easily and you had more time, then you could launch anytime you wanted.
1: So in other words, nuclear-powered po- rockets, uh, nuclear propulsion um, – You wouldn't have to worry about this two-year cycle for the launch window.
0: It would still be an issue, but it wouldn't be the primary issue. And then another uh, new technology that we've been using for the last about a decade is solar electric propulsion. Right. Where you have large solar panels that collect a lot of solar energy. We use that energy as electricity to send out ions from the back of the spacecraft. It's very weak propulsion, but it's very steady and... Uh, it doesn't take as much mass to do so. This is the type of technology they're going to use to bring samples back from Mars because you don't have to reset the rocket equation as the, the parlance of the engineers. Uh, when, you, when you go there and you go into Mars orbit, you can bring stuff back with you because you don't have to change your mass so much. It takes a lot less mass.
1: Okay. So let's uh, get back to the question in hand, and I kind of got us off track. <laughs> Uh, no but about the condensation of Mars's atmosphere, uh, the seasonal condensation of Mars's atmosphere. Um, so Mars's atmosphere, kind of give us a breakdown on. I mean, Mars's atmosphere, and compared to Earth, is only about one percent of Earth's uh, atmosphere. And can you kind of give us the the, uh, the chemical breakdown of the makeup sure. of Mars's atmosphere, and then why the condensation?
0: Yep. So the, the pressure of Mars is even less than 1% of Earth, uh, and that varies. So it varies between 0.6% uh, plus or minus uh point percent um, And that's equivalent to flying above 90,000 or more like 100,000 feet on Earth. And only really capable aircraft can do that. So drones, uh, un- unmanned drones or uh, unpiloted drones are the ones that can do that. And of course, it balloons. Um, and so that makes it really hard to fly at Mars because you have to. It's equivalent to flying so high on Earth. The primary constituent is carbon dioxide; it makes up about ninety-eight percent. Argon, oxygen, and nitrogen make up other parts of it. There's a tiny, tiny fraction of methane. We're talking parts per billion, and that is, you know, if if you had a billion dollars and I had one dollar, that's the kind of ratio that we're talking about. And it changes a little bit, but not a lot. And we're
1: gonna we're gonna talk about that later. Okay. Uh, about the methane, but uh, but that's kind of the overview of the of the chemical makeup of of the atmosphere, uh, uh, of the yeah. atmosphere it, that that exists as it is today, right?
0: That's right. And there's an interesting thing that happens uh, in the northern winter or in the southern winter when a bunch of carbon dioxide freezes to the ground. It has an enhancing effect on the other constituents. So argon enhances by a factor of four or six, approximately. So the argon in the atmosphere is uh, more enriched than it would be during a regular part of the year.
1: And so, just for the, the others, just to be clear, I want to get the you're saying that the atmosphere on Mars varies over time, uh, the, the atmospheric pressure, and varies from 0.6 percent of that of Earth's atmosphere up to 0.9 percent of Earth's atmosphere. Did I or did I hear you wrong?
0: Yeah, just a, a tenth of a percent, really, not even three tenths. So it is smaller, you know, zero point five to zero point seven approximately, and I don't know the exact numbers. And it really depends on where you are on the surface. If you're down at the bottom of Hellas Basin, at the deepest point on Mars, the atmospheric pressure is much higher than if you're at the top of Olympus Mons.
1: But it's 20, even but it's even less than one percent. Is that right?
0: That's right. It never okay. gets above one percent. Currently, there is uh, very strong evidence that a bunch of carbon dioxide is frozen to the south pole of Mars. And the mass of that is approximately equal to the mass of the atmosphere. I was on a team that studied this in depth for almost a decade now. And what we found is that there's uh, layered CO2 deposits that indicate some kind of freezing cycle or we might call it a partial atmospheric collapse cycle. And so there's uh, three distinct units of carbon dioxide there. That deposited at different times and if they were all released into the atmosphere they could double the atmospheric pressure and that would give us about 1.2 percent of the earth's atmospheric pressure now you may have heard elon musk talk about nuking mars or nuking the south pole of mars and that's why he wants to do it so he can double the atmospheric pressure and help in way terraform the planet
1: and i would say that's a kind of a wild idea i mean I assume that because you're a scientist, that you would like to preserve Mars as a science reserve,
0: right? Absolutely. I, we should absolutely study Mars to the best of our ability before we mess it up. And nuking <laughs> okay. the planet, of course, is one of the fastest ways to mess it up.
1: Okay. Um, so let's get back to uh, the Mars polar science because at that conference, uh, I remember writing an article, kind of based, kind of generated by something you had said at the conference itself, which was. That the um, the vagaries of the polar ice caps drive Mars's global climate. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Well, I think uh, those might be your words, but um, so the 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 climate that's recorded at the poles tells us that Mars has changed uh, like these Milankovitch cycles tell us many many times in the last few million years. Uh, so those layers are really indicative of. Uh, periods of erosion at the poles, periods of accumulation at the poles. They can tell us about the winds at the poles, which vary on a seasonal basis. And inside of each layer, there's almost certainly different gases that are trapped. Uh, I say that because on Earth, the ice caps have trapped gases and they can tell us about the composition of the atmosphere through time. And so uh, I've read recently that they can tell which volcano in Alaska erupted during the previous ice age because they have an ice core And they found chemicals from that volcanic eruption in the ice core and were able to determine exactly when and where that volcano erupted. And so this is kind of the thing that we might expect to see uh, during eruptions on Mars is that the the atmospheric composition will change. It'll put in uh, dust and ash into the atmosphere and that'll get recorded in the layers, including also the atmospheric gases. Uh, A lot of other things fall out, so... From the atmosphere, we know the salt will be precipitating onto the surface. Salt is a very big player in all things Mars. And then of course, dust, Mars is covered with dust in many, many locations, and it can be many meters deep. And so we expect the dust concentration to change through time, and then that can be embedded in the layers of ice cap. So I I like to think about uh, Mars as a very simplified version of Earth where we don't have known biology, there's no oceans, and there's definitely no humans interacting with the climate to change the climate. And so it's a simplified laboratory, almost a pristine example of what can happen on a planet that has ice, different kinds of ice, and goes through Milankovitch cycles.
1: And so um, what about the uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter? You were on one of the teams for the the NASA Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And uh, how did that contribute, how did the spacecraft contribute to the Our understanding of Mars's polar science. Uh, For the first time, MRO was able to make radar observations of Mars's North Pole and its layered sediments and ice deposits.
0: MRO has been a fantastic mission for exploring the polar regions and polar science as a whole, among other things, because MRO has been really fantastic for studying the whole planet. Uh, Because my research focuses on the polar regions and I'm a Co-investigator of Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter through the Shallow Radar team, we call that SHARAD as the instrument. Uh, I'm really familiar with that, but there's quite a few. Um, there are quite a few discoveries that MRO has made. Uh, you mentioned the radar. The radar has been a fantastic. Uh, um, the radar has been a fantastic instrument for helping us unlock secrets that are in the layers. But I should be clear that it's not the first radar to fly to Mars there is a radar on Mars Express. It's called Marsys. And it was able to probe the ice caps before MRO even got there. And so that's, that was really great. Um, there are some major differences. The original radar, Marsis had a much lower resolution. And so it was much better for measuring the bulk properties, not the layer properties. And this is where Sherrod excels. We can see unconformities in the ice cap. and unconformity is a region where we formerly had accumulation and then erosion and then more accumulation. And that gives us a very distinct pattern uh, with intersections of the layers. And we can use that to determine when and and where there was mar- large erosion events related to ice ages or mass transport from the poles to other regions. And so Sherrod's been in- invaluable in mapping out these layers. And I've been a big player. I've played a big role in doing that.
1: So you uh, also stated that one of the future goals is to find a way to explore the last uh, four to five kilometers of Mars's
0: atmosphere above
1: the poles. Or did I get that wrong?
0: That's absolutely. The difficulty of studying the lower atmosphere, so we might think of it as a, a, a part of a scale height or the boundary layer. This is the planetary boundary layer, uh, which changes through the night and day. So it goes up and down depending on the, the heat driven by the sun. This is where a lot of stuff happens. If you're subliming ice, so taking it from solid to gas from the ice cap, it goes up, but it doesn't go that far up. And then it gets transported, and then it gets put down somewhere else. And so it can go from the mid-latitudes to the poles or from the poles to the mid-latitudes.
1: And so what is this uh, – but again, I just want to make certain that the listener understands what causes this um, – the moving around of the atmosphere? Why does it go from the poles to the mid-latitudes and back to the poles and you know, God knows what? <laughs>
0: Uh, And so I want to be careful when we're talking about the atmosphere, we're primarily talking about carbon dioxide and and that is the primary constituent and it drives winds, it drives uh, dust transport, dust devils. Um, When I'm talking about water ice, I'm not talking about the atmosphere as a whole, I'm talking about a small constituent of the atmosphere. And so what happens is uh, during the day, the surface gets warm and on earth, the snow will melt or it'll sublime and when it sublimes it goes to the atmosphere it raises the humidity and then the wind will blow that somewhere else if it's cold enough it'll snow out somewhere else the same is true on mars there's a place that gets too warm and the water that's either there at the surface or a little bit below the surface will go into the gas phase and it will be transported as a vapor to a different place on the planet where it'll eventually freeze out and so this is it's the same thing that happens on earth except there's no liquid state at least at the surface there's no liquid state and so uh, it always goes from solid to gas. Okay. And that's what that's what I mean by that.
1: All right. So uh, one other thing I just uh, popped into my head, and I, I think it's worth mentioning, we didn't discuss this uh, prior to the interview, but uh, I assume you saw The Martian, uh, the Matt Damon movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay.
1: That's great. Uh, I, I love the film, but uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was one major scientific inaccuracy. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And that is the... Uh, the, basic, the winds. The, the winds. Yeah. There's no way in Hades that uh, yeah. that Mars has a wind sufficient to blow down um, a right. a return vehicle uh, to Earth like that. That uh, you know,
0: once there's, there's, go ahead. There's no way. There's there's no way on God's red Mars to make <laughs> that happen. the The winds are enough. The atmosphere is thick enough that you could use a helicopter there or a balloon. And, and the helicopter I use because on the Perseverance rover that's uh, sailing to Mars right now, it's taking a helicopter with it and it will fly on Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's not enough to push anything over.
1: That's a tiny uh, miniature little drone. Oh, tiny. tiny. Yeah, a yeah. little drone. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and I'm involved with a group of people who are trying to build windmills for Mars. But the amount of power you can get out of a windmill is really, really tiny compared to what you get on Earth. On Mars, you might be able to get uh, hundreds of milliwatts, so a factor of 1,000 smaller uh, with the same kind of winds. Um, and I don't want to undersell the value of this because there's a lot of value in building windmills for Mars because in the polar night, which lasts over 300 days, 300 sols with no sun, you really want to be able to power your instruments to make measurements. As we were talking about before in the bottom five, four or five kilometers from the surface, you really want to make those measurements. And so wind power is a great way to do that because you're not taking, you don't have sun and you're not taking radioactive materials, which warm the air and affect your air measurements. And so uh, yes, there's enough wind to turn a very light windmill, but there's not enough wind to blow over anything. And you would maybe notice it on your chest, but it wouldn't push you around. One thing that Mars has going for it though, is that the atmospheric mean molecular weight is higher. And the mean molecular weight is the mass of the average molecule made up of the atmosphere. On Earth, it's oxygen. uh, I'm sorry. On Earth, it's nitrogen is the primary one. And nitrogen as a molecule weighs less than carbon dioxide, which has three elements versus two. And because of that, the mean molecular weight, even though the wind is lower in speed, you transfer more momentum because you have a higher weight. And so that has one thing. Mars has one thing going for it. and, And that's it.
1: So let's talk about the – you mentioned milliwatts. So potentially these windmills could generate milliwatts of, uh, of electricity. Uh, what, what can a milliwatt power?
0: Well, it's really hundreds of milliwatts and even up to a few watts. So what could, a, what could a, uh,
1: hundreds of milliwatts or even a few watts uh, end up powering in terms of instrumentation?
0: The, the main thing we want to measure is temperature, pressure, humidity, and wind speed. We'd love to have these measurements throughout the year, especially the polar regions because uh, at the, we haven't explored the polar regions very much at all and it's dark. And because the poles drive so much of the climate, so much of the surface activity, winds, everything on Mars, we really want to know what's happening there. And I, as a, my favorite topic is what is forming a layer right now at the surface and how will that layer become part of the climate record? And if we can't survive the polar night, then we're not going to be able to understand what forms the current layer. And then we don't know what, it, what the older layers mean.
1: And the Martian that's night what? normally at the poles lasts what? It's about 300 Earth days. 300 Earth days. Good Lord. That's, uh, that's quite a bit. It's quite
0: long. Well, Remember, Mars year is about two times as long as Earth year.
1: That's amazing. Yep. That's- yeah,
0: and then if you're at the North Pole of Earth or at the South Pole of Earth, you're going to have 100 and so days of dark. And Mars, you double everything. So of being approximately 300 days of dark.
1: So the Mars uh, uh, polar lander, the Phoenix lander, uh, which uh, detected the perchlorate in 20, uh, 2008 inside Mars' Arctic Circle at 68 degrees north latitude. Um, perchlorate salt at the Martian poles may lower the freezing point of water to create pockets of water ice that could offer Extremophile microorganisms, both the habitat and the source of energy. Um, as i as I noted in one of my forbes pieces, pieces based on this uh, conference in Ushuaia, Argentina. so how would how would that work? and and why was the discovery of perchlorate by the Phoenix Mars Lander so
0: important? Perchlorate is a very potent salt, and by potent, I mean that it it's not like table salt. When you put table salt in water, it'll lower the freezing point a little bit. And uh, it acts as an antifreeze, just like uh, antifreeze in your car engine. You know, you can go down a few degrees below freezing and still maintain a liquid. Uh, but that's those are weak salts. When you use, when you have perchlorate, it's a very powerful salt. And you could take it down to like minus 100 degrees before the liquid would freeze entirely. And so this gives you little liquid pockets that may be able to provide some activity for either a habitable environment or other chemical processes, uh, even when it's cold, because of this powerful salt.
1: What's the case uh, for a polar lander, um, and how are the two poles different? I mean, there was an attempt to send a lander uh, to the South Pole, I believe, by NASA in 1998. Uh, yeah, the Mars th- Polar Lander. Yeah, yeah. and uh, can you tell us what happened to that one?
0: Uh, that was one of the tragic incidents where uh, it didn't land. What it, well, it did a hard landing, and we've never found it. It's uh, I think it might be the only place only spacecraft that we haven't found yet. And the reason is a pretty interesting one. The place where it landed was is so active. There's so much surface change through eruptions from beneath the surface uh, when the ice starts to warm up in the springtime. Uh, winds blowing stuff around, dust cover. It's so active that we actually haven't found the spacecraft yet even though it probably made a crater we still can't find it Um, and so that was tragic uh it would have given us some really great information about what happens at the south pole south pole i believe was chosen because uh it was the one that was most studied up to that point but now the north pole actually gets a lot more study and it's just because it's easier to understand the north pole we can see with telescopes better we can see layers there not that we can't see layers in the south, but we can. But the ones in the north seem to be much cleaner and easier to to measure. That's especially true with radar. The radar in the north works beautifully. We can see all the way to the bottom. We can see lots of layers. In the south, uh, we have to describe it like a fog. The radar attenuates much more quickly, and we don't see the bottom with Sherrod. We can usually see the bottom with Marsis, but again, Marsis doesn't have the re- resolution to show us all the layers. And so what we end up with is that the north is studied much more heavily for multiple reasons.
1: And the South Pole, though, is uh, actually has a larger ice cap than the North?
0: The South Pole has a larger ice cap, so a larger volume, and it has the carbon dioxide deposits I was talking about earlier. So there are some very interesting things that are happening there. Uh, we just understand them to a lesser degree.
1: So someone at the conference suggested, uh, well, first of all, everybody is in favor of a Mars polar lander. That's I I think everybody at the conference had agreed that that should be a priority. Is that right? And and you would as well, I I would assume.
0: I might be the first one in line.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, But someone at the conference suggested that we could send rovers to the poles that instead of just a lander, we could actually send rovers that could actually make their way down a scarp, uh, these scarp outcrops. Can you explain in geologic terms what a scarp entails?
0: Have you driven through Colorado or any place where you drive and the road has been cut by engineers and the road crew in order to show you the layers? Absolutely, yeah. They're not doing it to show you the layers. They're doing it to make a nice road. What happens is all those layers are exposed. And uh, so if you take a geology class as an undergraduate, they'll take you to these road cuts, and you can look at the layers and learn a lot. Those are pretty vertical Uh, But there are places, if you're driving around in the countryside, then the layers are less vertical. And so instead of a cliff, it makes what we call a scarp. And the scarp can have uh, angles that range almost to zero degrees, so almost perfectly flat, up to, you know, approximately 90 degrees. The ones on the ice caps uh, vary. And so some are quite steep and some are quite shallow. The ones that we predominantly think of as exposing all the layers are on the order of a few degrees, three to five degrees. And that is very easy for a rover to handle. The Opportunity rover drove down a slope of, I think, 23 degrees. Curiosity's done that too. And so going uh, down to three to five degrees is almost nothing for them. And so they could drive down these very shallow scarves and sample a layer every few meters and learn about the climate history that way.
1: And so we're talking about maybe a, a billion and a half, uh, uh, you know, a small scale uh, rover, not a huge thing maybe a billion-dollar rover?
0: Yeah, it's hard to throw those numbers around. Uh, in order to survive in the cold, they're going to have to have more heaters, and that means you need more energy. Uh, and so you have to either take the energy with you or have bigger solar panels. And so some of the things, it's the same class as Curiosity and Perseverance, but it's going uh, to have its unique situations that require more engineering. So the, it's hard to throw dollar amounts around. There is a way to make the dollar amount go down though. And that is if you send a reconnaissance lander to measure the sample to measure and sample the top layers so down to about half a meter, a couple of feet. If you're able to do that, you would know precisely which molecules are there, which chemicals, which trapped gases, if there's any radioactive material, I don't mean radioactive, I mean uh, isotopes that we could use to measure perhaps Uh, the age of formation of some of these layers. If we knew exactly what was there ahead of time, then we could send a rover to measure only those things. And if you did so, then you could reduce the instrument package, you could reduce the size of the the rover and make it cheaper. If you don't send that precursor mission, then what happens is you have to send a rover that is extremely capable to measure all possible things because this is your one mission. And so then the cost gets really inflated as you have more and more components that measure more precision Uh, And then, of course, more mass and more energy. And so there's a strategy you could choose. And I've worked with a a team. that um, We had a think tank at the Keck Institute for Space Studies. uh, A group of uh, 38 scientists came up with this idea. Scientists and engineers, I should say. If you send two New Frontiers class missions, and so the New Frontiers is capped at about $750 you can send two of those and actually get all the science done. Or you can send a $2.5 billion rover and get the science done you can save a billion dollars by doing it in pieces. And so there's this trend among uh, NASA groups to send bigger and more capable missions. But there might actually be really good, compelling reasons to send smaller missions and multiple ones so that you don't put all of your eggs in one basket. And You know, you might get great science, but if you might not, there's a risk. But also uh, by doing that, if you put two and a half billion dollars in a rover, that's money that couldn't be spent somewhere else.
1: Right. That maybe
0: should be spent somewhere else. Yeah. Okay, so I think sending multiple smaller missions is uh, a very positive way to think about getting more science done at Mars, quicker turnaround, uh, and you know less cost.
1: Now let's get to the. We're coming to the end of the podcast, but I only have like three or four more questions I want to hit before we say goodbye, and okay. uh, the um, the methane issue, which, which is connected, uh, you know, p- potentially to. Some sort of uh, biotic process uh, c- could be. Could you kind of give us a history of this issue of is there methane on Mars, and uh, have we found organic uh, molecules on Mars? Uh,
0: well, methane itself may be an organic molecule, and so uh, if that, so, maybe yes. Uh, I'm not aware of any other organic molecules.
1: And an organic molecule, in lay terms, simply just means an, a molecule that uh, is made up of uh, carbon.
0: Correct? That's the simplest way to put it. Yeah, it has carbon in it.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a mini… There's that's, a, that's a cliff note version, okay? That's right.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, okay. It, well, give us
1: a more nuanced uh, definition of organic then.
0: I, I think that it would require some kind of organic process to form this molecule. You know, humans expel carbon dioxide, but we don't tend to think of carbon dioxide as an organic molecule. Okay. Even though humans make… Carbon dioxide. All animal life on Earth makes carbon dioxide. I believe so. Right. Um, carbon dioxide is not considered an organic molecule. It's kind of the end state. So uh, you kind of want to think about stability of a molecule. Methane, uh, which has carbon and hydrogen, can burn. But carbon dioxide cannot burn. And so, uh, carbon dioxide is kind of the end result. It's the last thing that happens to carbon, and, and before it becomes a rock, basically. Where methane can do a lot of other things. Uh, before it ends up as carbon dioxide or a rock. Okay. And I am by no means a geochemist, and I'm not a methane expert, Uh, so I'll give you my best answers about the formation of methane on Mars. Uh, This has been a controversy for over two decades, uh, since the first results coming back from Earth-bound telescopes suggested there might be methane. Uh, And there was a group that published a result of very high methane concentrations in the Martian atmosphere. I mean, to the point where very few people believed it. Like, how could it possibly be that high? Although the measurements were there, I think looking back, we might have said that uh, there were nuances to the measurements in the sense that it could have been something else, especially to get that really high concentration. More recently, however, uh, we sent new spacecraft. So there's the Trace Gas Orbiter sent by Europe, the European Space Agency, and there's the Curiosity Rover, Both of them measure methane. Uh, They measure them to different effectiveness and they measure different parts of the atmosphere. So Curiosity Rover only measures, only measures what's about one meter from the surface. It doesn't look above or below that. Where Trace Gas Orbiter only measures what's in the top uh, hundreds of kilometers of the atmosphere, but not the bottom 10 kilometers. And so there's no overlap in the measurements. And that means any of the controversy you've heard may not actually exist. you know, if we're getting twelve parts per billion from the from the rover, and Trace Gas Orbiter doesn't see that, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that they're measuring different things. As far as the bio, biological formation mechanism, I don't think there are too many proponents of that. I think there are people saying it's possible.
1: Right. So, and, so bottom line, it's uh, some sort of abiotic formation of uh, methane on Mars. Is what you that, that's your best guess.
0: Uh, there are some people who su- suggest that there are methane clathrates in the subsurface. A clathrate. Is, would be a methane molecule that's wrapped in another molecule. And then when it gets warm enough, the other one goes away, leaving the methane to float off into the atmosphere.
1: But bottom line is, what I'm trying to get at, is that at this point, the, there are few yeah. mainstream planetary well, scientists who think the methane is indicative of some sort of extant life or even right. some it, sort of... Uh, there's
0: no there's no cows farting on Mars right now. Right now. <laughs>
1: okay, yeah. yeah. We kind of gathered that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. okay all right so um but anyway this this whole issue uh of the poles and the 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 way that they can kind of uh change over the seasons and over over uh geologic time raises the issue of you know perhaps uh, there could be some sort of microbe or bacterial life at the poles and um one of the participants uh uh, told me uh, Jacqueline Campbell, she was a doctoral candidate in planetary science uh, at the Mullard Space Lab in the UK, but she, anyway, she told me, quote, everything we know about biology would suggest that if there is some sort of bacterial life on Mars' as poles, it will either be dormant or metabolizing incredibly slowly.
0: Right. She said it the best way possible. If it's happening, it's happening very slowly. That doesn't mean it's not happening or there's not happening in peri- periodic episodes. Uh, and so, right now, the poles are cold. Uh, it would take something like a, a really strong salt to make liquids, even in the summertime. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And the other thing is nice thing about ice is that it protects you from radiation from space. And so, if you're down just a few centimeters in the ice, you could survive all the radiation and not break down. And so that's why people are really looking at ice as a potential habitat, not to mention, of course, it has water. Uh, So having water, having likelihood of salts be there and the protection from radiation really gives life the best chance to to thrive or at least be uh, stable uh, over long periods. Uh, I am not an astrobiologist and uh, this is not my focus. I'm really interested to hear what they find about ice and salts mixing to give uh, conditions favorable enough for a microbe to live. That that's a really cool idea and I support that effort. And I think this is an opportunity for the more glaciologist and pure geologist to team up with the astrobiologist and use the common goal of understanding that ice and if there's any liquids in that ice as a way to push for NASA to select a mission to go there. I think these two groups can team up and really have have a lot of weight, they can throw their weight around and say, we think this is really important, we should absolutely do this.
1: Okay, and then then the Yeshuaia Conference itself. I mean, this was a fascinating uh, locale, and uh, you chose this locale way down, um, not that far from uh, Antarctica, actually, Uh, but uh, way down in, uh, in Tierra del Fuego fascinating, uh, much colder, even though it was the Argentinian summer, it was much colder and wetter <laughs> yeah. uh, than I than I had hoped, to be honest. But um, so um, what – I was also fascinated by the fact that these researchers at the conference were just dying and itching to get out in, into the field. And, uh, you know, when the average person sees uh, uh, MRO p- images from Mars – of the landscape and they say wow that's cool we can interpret it and uh, it was interesting to, to see that these uh, researchers one of the one of the big draws to that area was to actually go out into the field and uh, take pictures and and do these little mini seminars in the field to better interpret their their mars data can you can you explain how that works
0: i'd love to um I've organized two Mars Polar Science Conferences. Uh, I didn't do it alone, I had teams, and this one I worked with the team in Argentina, and then a colleague of mine, Pat Becerra, who's in Switzerland right now. The team put together this conference uh, and the field trips with the goal of, of course, bringing people who study ice on Mars together. And we do this approximately every four years. And the reason we choose polar regions, this time was in southern tip of Argentina, Last time it was in Iceland, and it's been in Switzerland and Alaska and Canada in in the past. We choose these locations because they're fantastic field geology related to ice and ice processes. So there's glaciers and permafrost and other things in between. Any good geologist, I should say the best geologists, have seen the most rocks. And that's just truism of the guy who's been out there, the woman who's been out there looking at rocks the longest. When they see a new rock, they're going to have context with which to compare that people who only look at photographs can make some really interesting interpretations and come up with hypotheses. And and as often as they're right, they may not be right. Uh, So it really takes a geologist to understand uh, what's happening on the surface there. And so I could show you a picture of a glacier on Mars and I can show you a picture of a glacier on Earth. And if I didn't tell you which one was which, you'd have a hard time telling me which one it was. Or gullies or uh, canyons, there are places where some things look so familiar even though they're on a different planet. Uh, a, a colleague of mine likes to go to Utah to do field work, and she'll take a picture in Utah and send it to me, and she goes, is this Earth or Mars? And <laughs> I don't know because they're so similar.
1: Uh, so, and so so really, Utah and Mars are so similar,
0: really. In many ways, they are. The, the layers of rocks, the, they're really red in many places. Uh, they're quite dusty. Uh, so a lot of things are similar between the two. And Antarctica and the Arctic have many commonalities with Mars too, And so, yes, we can take a photograph and we can look at it and study it. But if we don't have the context of having been in the field, maybe at a conference, and a conference field trip, then we may not know exactly what we're looking at and it takes a long time to figure it out. But some of the best stuff comes out of these guys who live in Norway or in Sweden and they, they look at these rocks on the ground and these rocks have patterns. They're either in circles or they're sunken into the ground or they're raised above the ground. They say, I wonder how that happens. And then they slice it with a a shovel, and then they can see there's ice under the ground. They're making these patterns. It's pushing the rocks around. That makes the patterns. And then they look at a picture of Mars. They're like, I know exactly how that forms on Mars because I've seen it on Earth. But you and I, who've never seen these uh, patterned ground behaviors of permafrost, probably won't identify it properly, would come up with some other ideas. And so that's what I mean when I say that uh, the best geologists have seen the most rocks and uh, planetary scientists who get in the field and and look at walk on a glacier, who study permafrost, they're going to have really good ideas about what ha- what's happening on Mars.
1: So, how do you uh, respond to members of the general public, uh, or people even within the the uh, space and astronomical and planetary science community who scoff at spending more money on Mars
0: exploration? So are you asking about like planetary exploration or specifically Mars exploration? Because there's there's two answers to that.
1: I, I would say Mars exploration first,
0: yeah. Okay. Um, Mars, compared to other planets, is our nearest neighbor. It's the one most likely to be visited by humans after the moon in the near future. It has processes that we can learn about. As I mentioned, the Milankovic cycle. And actually, is,
1: it's not the nearest neighbor. Venus is the nearest neighbor.
0: That's true. So... If you look at the average, Venus is closer, but sometimes Mars is closer. But it's also closer in terms of like being able to walk around, take a picture and say this looks like Utah when you're on Mars. There's some things that just make it closer, more human-like, or more within human experiences. We can go to Venus. We can uh, send a balloon there. We can send orbiters. We can even send robots to the ground that last short times. And Venus is totally worthy of exploration. There's no question about that. And I think the argument stems from the idea that, well, Mars has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of money and Venus hasn't gotten a lot of attention and money. Or Europa, Enceladus, Triton, Titan. These are amazing moons out there in the outer solar system and they should all be studied. Mars people would never take that away. We all agree that those should be studied. Uh, I think there's some urgency to Mars because we want to send humans there soon and it's unlikely to send humans to the outer solar system anytime soon. And And this is kind of an unfortunate side effect of having already sent a lot of spacecraft to Mars. We have a lot of momentum. We have a large community of people who are studying it and thinking about Mars. And that gives us many mature hypotheses about what's happening. And, you know, it's it's true that when you send uh, an instrument to go answer one question, you might solve that. You might answer that question, but you're going to come up with five more questions. And that's part of the thing that's happened at Mars is we've been asking questions for so long, we've been sending instruments, that we've got more questions than we started with. And so if you're looking from a compelling science standpoint, having these questions unanswered is a really compelling reason to go back to Mars, even though it would mean we don't answer as many questions elsewhere. But we've also
1: just scraped the surface of uh, Mars exploration, you know.
0: That's right. And, you know, learning about the depth of the core, that is super critical in understanding of planetary formation. Mars can teach us about all the other planets that way, all the other terrestrial planets in our solar system and in outer in solar systems that don't belong to our sun. Mars right. can teach us a lot. Because it doesn't have biology, because it doesn't have humans interacting with the climate, uh, because it doesn't have oceans.
1: Well, the other thing the- that, that people don't realize is, I mean, you know, we don't really understand everything about Antarctica. And we've been no. there for decades. We've had people on the ground for decades. Now, now, now think about if we'd had you know, for decades, uh, teams of geologists uh, at Mars, you know. It's a similar environment in many ways. I mean, they're both desert climates, right? Uh, Very dry, very inhospitable. Um, But, uh, you know, we've had all these people, you know, at at, uh, semi-permanent and permanent stations in in Antarctica, and we still don't have a handle on a lot of the geophysics that go on down there. It's true, and so yeah, it's hard.
0: Mars is much, much harder. Mars,
1: yeah. and we're, we're much, much harder because we we never even have touched the surface, you know, except robo- was, yeah. except robotically, right? So right. It, it's it, it's insane. Uh, you know, we've sent twelve uh, astronauts to the moon, and uh, that's uh, they've you know they've spent very little time on the surface, and uh, that's like uh, pretending that you've explored the continental uh, intermountain West with, uh, 12 guys, you know, for, sure. for two weeks. Come on. I mean, even Lewis well, and Clark well, okay. did better than that. Right. And then, the uh, the present day understanding of, of Mars's climate. Uh, what are we, uh, what are we currently missing in understanding present day Mars? Look, in terms of the climate,
0: we are missing a lot of the variables, uh, temperature, pressure, wind speeds near the surface, humidity involved too. uh, We don't know what's happening right at the surface. And that surface is uh, directly responding to the current climate. Either it's uh, losing ice or it's putting ice down somewhere else. And we just don't know the magnitude of any of that. Um, I have debates with colleagues, even in Ushuaia at that conference we had in January. uh, Some people still say that the North Polar Cap is losing ice. I believe it's gaining ice. We don't have that answered yet. So that's a really big question that we I think should be a top priority for everybody who wants to send something to Mars is what's the mass distribution of of water and energy on the surface. So
1: finally, why did uh, Mars go wrong? So in other words, why, if it were habitable three and a half billion years ago, you know, what uh, we know that the Maven spacecraft uh, showed that uh, it lost a lot of its atmosphere due to. Uh, solar protons which basically stripped it pretty cleanly like a, a piranha yep. uh, stripping a planet uh yep. of its uh, of its flesh but um you know aside from that we, <laughs> aside from that i mean we see that but uh, you mentioned the, ma- the fact that it had a short-lived magnetic field which yep. uh, w- which it was unable to protect itself from these these uh solar protons perhaps uh, is there anything okay. else
0: those are the big ones. Um, there's unfortunately we don't actually know all the water on the planet right now. And so we need future spacecraft with more radars, uh, and even drills to go and look for water. We, we don't know the full water budget. And so that, that means that we don't actually know the full budget of anything. If we could get an idea of what the current state is and like Maven, the current processes and magnitudes, then we could get a really clear idea of what happened in the past. But right now we're just missing too many variables. Uh, So I I don't know if Mars went wrong. I think it's a fascinating planet. Uh, There's so many great reasons to study Mars from old rocks to young ice, to the atmosphere and the upper atmosphere. There's so many great things. Uh, So in that sense, from a scientific curiosity value, I don't think it went wrong at all. I think it's it's a beautiful laboratory waiting for us to go look at and go pick up rocks and see what happened.
1: So what puzzles you most about the red planet?
0: I think about those layers on the ice caps every day. I want to know uh, the age of the the layers, even the age of one layer, we don't know. I want to know what gases are trapped in there, how much dust. Is there active chemical processing happening? Uh, And then that leads us to think about if there's a metabolism of some sort, if there's a habitable environment all of those things are in the layers and we can learn about them. So that's, if I were to send a mission to Mars, it would be to go look at those layers.
1: So uh, do you have a, a way that listeners can contact you uh, to comment uh, for, for for more information, uh, social media or email or what?
0: I have a Twitter account. Uh, it's Mars underscore Polar. No surprise there. And that's probably the best way. I'm also easy to look up online. You can find uh, Isaac Smith at York University, and you'll be able to find that my email address that way.
1: And it's uh, Isaac B. Smith. Uh, that that uh, that makes it a lot easier, right?
0: Isaac B. Smith. That's right. Okay.
1: So um, as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at uh, com or B. Dorminy on my Twitter feed. Isaac Smith. Let's uh, hope that by the middle of next year, all three of these new spacecraft will be sending back great data. Um, thanks again for being a part of the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I love talking about all these topics.
1: Thank you. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormady. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormady, or his regular post on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies.
0: Music provided by RFM.